If you have your Bibles with you, we'll be in that same passage that uh, Brother Hyun just read, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. This is the last in our uh, series that has been called by uh, our uh, Brother Joshua, Gospel Culture. Gospel culture. And that idea of culture is the way that we do things. And it's the way that we do things because of the values that we hold. The gospel changes the way that we do things. And by gospel, I mean the good news that Jesus Christ came, he gave his life for us so that we could be reconciled to God by believing in his death in our place. He is resurrected from the dead. That gospel, when you believe that, that changes our culture, changes how we do things. It transforms both our personal cultures, the cultures that each of us have because of the house that we grew up in and because of the ethnicity that we have, because of all the those things that make us who we are transforms our personal culture and it gives us as the body of Christ a shared culture. Because we are still affected by sin, gospel culture has to be cultivated. Right, uh, as we don't just come into our new life in Christ fully formed, fully understanding, fully living out gospel culture. And we have to be being changed. And so in this series, we've targeted 11 ways so far, and this is the 12th, uh, that how the gospel should impact our church culture. We've talked about it, and I'll read them through here quickly. And I don't know if you know, but we have a church website, cornerstoneoc.com. You can go there and find find these sermons online if you've missed any. But we've talked about it being a needy uh, church. We need to be a hopeful church, a confident church, a church where every minister is using their gifts in one another's lives, to be a, a family church, uh, to be a pleading church, pleading with sinners to be reconciled to God, to be a holy church, a disciplined church, a Christ-centered church, a spiritually stable church, and last week Pastor Joshua talked about us being a merciful church. And today we're going to focus on being a gracious church, a gracious, gracious church. Now, gracious may not be the right word, uh, and, and I've struggled for exactly what is the best word, and, and I think gracious is going is to work, because the word can mean uh, courteous, kind, pleasant. You know, like you've got a gracious tone with someone, but we're talking about more than manners this morning. See, grace, gracious also means showing grace. Christians are those who have received God's grace. And God's grace is his abundant goodwill to those who deserve only punishment. We have received God's grace. God has been gracious to us. And when we say gracious like that, we all know what we mean, right? God's gracious. He gives us his grace. If we appreciate the grace of God, if, if we get even, even a portion of how much we deserve punishment, how little we deserve any kindness from God, we ought to have grace for one another. And I would say we will have grace for one another. And not just in a gracious tone. Now, we're going to uh, kind of work that, that, that concept a, a little bit more here. Now, often uh, when, when a systematic theology... Uh, when, when, when a book that encapsulates Bible's doctrine talks about grace, it uses it to describe the goodness of God to those who deserve only punishment, right? So grace is goodness to those who deserve punishment. And, but as we speak about being gracious to one another, I mean more than when someone has sinned against you and you, and you forgive them, right? So, so we don't want to only think about when, when someone kind of owes you because they've sinned and, 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 and you forgive them. We want to think about being gracious bigger than that. When we speak about being gracious, we're speaking about a, a, a un, an unbreakable, a, a unbreakable attitude, a, 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 disp, a disposition of favor towards everyone, okay? An unbreakable attitude of favor towards everyone, especially, but not only, when someone offends you or maybe when someone disappoints you, right? Being, being gracious. Now, maybe you need to be gracious with someone who's actually sinned against you. They, 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 they made a painful joke at your expense, 
Or maybe you need to be gracious with someone when there was an, an unattended offense. Maybe someone didn't say hi to you. Maybe they showed up late to something that you valued. Maybe they had a terse tone in an email. You don't know if it was intended or not. We need to be gracious um, with someone when maybe there's a failure to do something we care about. Like maybe we have a favorite ministry and we really are excited for people to serve in this ministry that we love and others don't want to. We need to be gracious. We need to be gracious with someone underperforms when we value excellence. We want to do everything really, really good and uh, you're not quite there. Or maybe it's the graciousness um, when you're trying to disciple someone and someone is, is really kind of digging in their heels and they're unwilling to obey. They're not working hard for obedience. Or maybe it's being gracious with someone who is correcting you when you don't think that you deserve to be corrected. Or maybe it's being gracious towards someone who is condescending toward you. All of those are kind of a list of kind of offensive things. Some of them are, 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 are maybe a little painful. Some of them are just a little awkward. It's just when, when maybe you know someone who's disappointed with you, or maybe you're disappointed with someone. Over time, you might find in your relationships with one another you go from really hopeful about them. Like, this person's going to be a great friend. I'm going to be able to depend on this person. They get me. Or maybe someone you're, you're discipling, they're going to flourish. I know it. And with maybe all those kinds of things, we become kind of like disappointed. You start realizing, well, or maybe you start feeling, there's too many differences to overcome for us to becoming real friends. And so the temptation is, as we deal with one another, the person shifts from someone who's in your favor to someone who's out of favor, right? You used to give them a thumbs up, then over time, maybe you give them a thumbs down. And you would never do that to their face because you're gracious. No, I'm not talking about that kind of gracious. Uh, but just... just you used to really value them, and now oh, it's, kind of a, it's, kind of, it's kind of a sore spot. Now, that can happen over time as you get to know someone. They're just not what you had expected, they've, and they've hurt you. They've let you down. They've disappointed you. It could also be disappointment at first sight, though, because they're just different from you. Like, maybe you're excited when someone comes with a lot of tattoos to church, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get along really well with this person. But you're disappointed when someone comes wearing a suit. Oh, a suit. Maybe you're excited when someone starts getting some Reformed doctrine going. You're like, this is a Calvinist. We're going to get along great. But oh, that person sounds a little Arminian there. Yeah. When our thumb is trigger-happy, just waiting to plummet at the first disappointment. That's not being gracious. Being gracious is being generous with your favor when someone is different from you. Being generous with your favor when someone is different from you. Being gracious is not letting someone fall out of your favor. Your disposition towards them is constantly favor. You are devoted to them. You are loyal to them. Being gracious is having favor for every single brother and sister in Christ. Right? If you were to look around the room, you can't find anyone that you don't have goodwill towards. You don't have condescension towards. You have favor. And this, being gracious is having favor for humanity in general. A gracious person's favor can only be lost, and, and even this I say cautiously, in the most dangerous of circumstances. If, if, if you're gracious, and you think of a reason to not be gracious, to not have favor for someone, it's because they're dangerous. Like, like a false teacher. If someone is coming to the church uh, denying the deity of Christ, are we going to have a lot of graciousness? We're going to, in a sense, we are, right? We're, we're going to sit them down and say, this is really serious, and we have to talk. 
We're going to eventually say, you can't teach that here. You can't be here because of what you keep teaching. But that's still going to be out of love for them. That's still going to be our desire to do what's best for them. Or when we do have to church discipline someone. It is because they've brought such shame upon Christ with their, with their unrepentant, unbroken sin, and with their public sin, that even when we church it, we're still looking for their good, right? It's still an act of real favor towards them, even if we have to say you can't be here, right? So, so the constant disposition of our heart towards every one of our brothers and sisters in Christ, it needs to be gracious. So again, we're not talking about tone. We're not talking about letting someone down gently. You're fired, but we love you. We're not talking about that kind of graciousness. We're talking about loyalty to everyone. We're talking about compassion. We're talking about faithfulness and being long-suffering and being hopeful and being big-hearted. It's not relegating people to the back of your friend bus. It's not letting, it's not labeling someone as their mistakes. Well, back in 2007 not even labeling someone by their sins. Being gracious is being for whom Jesus is for and optimistic that God is transforming us. Now, I've spoken a lot about being gracious without using any scripture. That should be disturbing to you. Uh, but it's okay because we're getting there. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Colossians 3, 12 through 14. And I just kind of want to explain what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at a great passage that summarizes this attitude of being gracious. If we're going to be a gracious church, if we're going to be a church that extends God's grace, Colossians 3, 12 through 14 totally describes what it's going to look like. And then we're going to do something a little weird. We're going to see how this... This being a gracious church is necessary. And then we're going, to, we're, we're going to go backwards to Colossians 3, 1 through 11. And we're going to see why it's necessary with that kind of church. And then at the end, we're going to go forward in verses 15 to 17 and look at how we can cultivate a gracious church. So first, we're going to start in verses 12, 12 through 14. We're going to look at these characteristics of a gracious church. We're going to look at the necessity of being a gracious church. And then we're going to look at how to cultivate being a gracious church. And I trust by God's grace that... Uh, uh, you'll see the logic of, of Colossians 3, and you'll come away saying, we have to be this. Mm-hmm. So first, what does a gracious church look like in Colossians 3, 12 through 14? It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Our relationships relationships we have with one another is not something we we doodly have to make it through. We just got to do our duty and kind of be okay with one another. The kind of relationship Paul describes here is our putting on Christ. It's our being like Christ. And that is the purpose of this life now. It is to be like Jesus in relationship to one another. It's not the only purpose, but it's a big one. To be like Jesus in relationship to one another. So here's the first char- this first characteristic of being gracious church, compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts, or you could also translate it in a little cruder way, bowels of pity. Bowels of pity is something that you can feel in your gut when you, ha- when you talk to someone about what they're suffering. It's opening your heart to another's pain and distress. You feel their hurts. You feel the the weight of their lives. And and you don't do this to the point that you become, become, become become incapacitated by their pain, but that you're sympathetic to their pain. You care about that whole person. You have a compassionate heart. That's the first characteristic. You also have kindness. Kindness, kindness does good. Kindness meets a need. It is generous and kindness is gentle. It's our hearts moving towards a person, open towards them. It's more than the absence of being harsh, where I think a lot of times you think of kindness as not being harsh with someone. Kindness moved towards those in suffering with, 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 with affection, but with also a desire to do them good. How can I serve you? It leads to our third characteristic, humility. Humility means lowly and not self-important. 
Now, it, it's, it's not just like a try, it's not trying to capture a tone in her voice. Well, I need to, I need to sound humble. Am, am I sounding humble now? Philippians 2.3 describes what humility is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's viewing yourself as each other's servant. As you consider them more important, that is what this graciousness is. You are devoted to their good, doing what's best for them, but not in a condescending way. We do this with meekness, and that's our fourth characteristic, meekness. It, 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 it flows out of humility well. It's not being impressed by our own import, importance is, 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 is what meekness is. It's not thinking about what we deserve. It's not thinking about how we ought to be treated. It's not self-centered. Because the relationship isn't really about what I want. And because that relationship is not about what I want, I have freedom. I have freedom with you to do what's best for you. When we have this meekness, we, we don't see people as roadblocks stopping us from getting what we want. And when they get what you wanted, you don't raise a fuss because you didn't deserve it anyways. Meekness is realizing that life is not about you, so you're able to be generous. The fifth characteristic is patience. It's bearing up when you're provoked. It's being long-suffering. It's not getting fed up with someone, not giving up on them, not checking out on your friendship because, well, we've, we've, we've gone through this. With each of these five words, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, with each of these five phrases, I is not the center. What we deserve is not the center. Our opinion is not the center. It's not about us. And most of the time when we fail to be gracious, it's because our focus is on us. Each of these words, these first five characteristics, is about what's best for the other person. The focus is on the other and not on yourself. Now, verse 13, as it says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, is kind of the manner that we put on the traits of verse 12. So those first five, char those first five characteristics in, verses, in verse 13 is kind of like how we're to do those. But I'm going to call them our, our sixth and, 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 and seventh. The first is bearing with one another. If we're going to put on those, those traits of verses 12, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to bear with one another. Relationships are hard because we are sinners in a sinful world. They are messy. We will find ourselves not getting what we want. And responses to us is not what we had hoped that they would be. Bearing with one another means we don't, we don't downgrade someone when they disappoint us or when they underperform. I thought they were going to be best friend and now they don't even have time for me. Well, and then I joked about that thumbs down. Now, this doesn't mean as we bear with one another that we don't address sin. It does mean we don't lash out at sin though. Our commitment to the person when we bear with one another, it remains unshaken even if they're very different from us, as different as was in the audience Paul's writing to, as different as Jews were from Gentiles. You could probably think of the person here who is most unlike you, maybe in age, in ethnicity, in economics, in professions. Culture, you, you bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other is a seventh characteristic. The root of the word forgiving is the word grace. We're gracing one another. It's, it is responding generously. It's canceling a debt that someone owes you. It's, it's, it's not demanding a retribution from them when they offend you. And it says, and if one has a complaint against another, now complaint doesn't mean that you're complaining it's, it's that you were treated wrongly. Someone is guilty 
of, uh, of an offense. So, so you have a valid complaint to give them, or at least you think that you do. Forgiving each other, not holding that against them. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's not requiring recompense. It's, it's not keeping a log of their offenses against you. It's, it, it's, it's maybe at times even forgoing them, making an apology, because you can and go forward in loving them. This freedom to forgive of not rehearsing these past wrongs comes from an awareness of how much Christ has forgiven us, how generous he is daily toward us, so that we can be daily gracious towards those who hurt us, to those who ignore us, who fall short of our expectations for them. And that's what's going to happen here again and again. We're going to hurt one another. We're going to disappoint one another. We're going to have expectations for one another that aren't met, whether they're good or bad. So we have to forgive one another. Just imagine how much Jesus was sinned against daily. Imagine how much Jesus was sinned against daily, not just by the Pharisees, but even by his disciples. Could you imagine if he wasn't forgiving of them? Jesus didn't set up a confessional each night when he called the disciples in. John, it's time to come and apologize, and I've been listing all of your sins from this day. Jesus wasn't holding up his, his thumb for them each night. Approve or disapprove. Jesus was always for his disciples. Judas was stealing money from the poor. And Jesus was still for Jesus. I mean, Jesus was still for Judas. He was for them. This doesn't mean we don't confront unrepentant sin. We know that we need to. We know that we need to instruct one another for their good. But it does mean as we forgive one another, we're, we're, we're not keeping score. We don't have a tally sheet. We, we are unwilling to replay painful mem memories. We're unwilling to replay unfair conversations. We don't rehearse a record of wrongs. Well, I remember one time, if we are going to remember all those things, we will not be gracious to one another. Gracing one another means forgiving one another. I'm sure I've done that to many of you. I know I have. And you're going to do it to me. If we're going to be gracious with one another, we need to bear one another. We need to forgive one another. Paul continues in Colossians 3.14, And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The, the eighth characteristic is not surprisingly love. And above all these, put on love. The most important trait to put on is love. Love is our eager, affectionate, committed devotion to every person for their good. Our eager, affectionate, committed devotion. I don't know if I need to say committed and devotion, but I did. Committed devotion to every person for their good. And ultimately, that good is to see them become more like Jesus Christ. Now, I know we all can't spend as much time with one another as we would like. But our commitment, our love for one another is, I want to see you become like Christ. And you, to me, is I want to see them become like Christ. And that is really what binds our graciousness together, is that it's not about us. It is about the glory of Christ. He says, love binds everything together in perfect harmony. And that word harmony is is uh, added there. It is not there in the Greek, and it could be translated as love is as it's described as the bond of perfection. I'm like, well, what is, what is this bond of perfection? Love is which unites this diverse body together so that we become mature together. Love is what binds us together so that we can be perfected together, so that we can mature together, so that we can become like Christ together. And that love is that root of that graciousness that keeps us united, keeps us forgiving, keeps us uh, compassionate, and keeps us patient and bearing with one another. Love is the glue of the new nature that binds this whole new man together. And by new man, I just don't mean, mean, mean us as individuals, but us together as the body of Christ. These descriptions, and you might even have someone in your heart now who, who you know you've not been gracious towards, who, who you've not forgiven, 
this requires supernatural strength. We can't have this kind of, this, these, this, be this kind of gracious church without Jesus' help. We're going to need supernatural resources. And that's what we get in Jesus Christ through our union with Jesus Christ. So I wanted to kind of launch at this picture here, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. I think this is a compelling picture of, of, of us being a gracious church. I think you understand why we need to be. If we've had so much grace, of course, we need to be gracious with one another. But now, and this is where I think it gets even more thrilling, like, like, like that's what we, we have to do, right? But now let's talk about why. And Colossians 3, 1 through 11 is pretty cool. So uh, uh, I hope you're excited about this. Why must we be a gracious church? And we're going to look at uh, the necessity of a gracious church in 3, 1 through 11. So some of us may be tempted as we read verses 12 through 14 to kind of minimize this a section. And, 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 you, and if you know Colossians, you might like, oh, and here's how we are to treat one another, and here's what church services are like, and here's rules for husbands and wives and slaves and masters, and then Paul has some prayer stuff, right? And you might just kind of skip through, the, and this is how we're to treat one another. And you might scroll down or scroll back up, like, I want something doctrinal and meaty. But the more you study Colossians, the more you see that the relationships within the church are the point of the gospel. I won't say that's the only point of the gospel, right? The gospel brings us to God, makes us worshipers of him. But there's this amazing thing that's going on in this life that as we look around and we're surrounded by other sinners and this life is really messy as we've been ta- talking about during, during quipping hour. We're loving messy people, messy people, loving messy people. Why are we here? Why does God leave us here now? And these relationships are a point of the gospel. The culture of grace in Colossians 3, 12 to 14, is why Jesus came. It is why Jesus came. How those in Christ treat one another is how we glorify Christ in this age. If you want to bring glory to Christ, it is in how you treat one another. So to, to, to give a little background to the book of Colossians, I know you've all been waiting for that. You know, like every good expository sermon tells who he's writing to. Uh, Paul, Paul, Paul's letter to the Colossians is about contrasting paths to maturity. Okay? It's about contrasting paths to maturity. How do we get to this full Christian experience? Well, and the, the, uh, the, the Colossian Christians, it was a church planted by Epaphras, one of Paul's, one of his, his co-workers. They would be tempted by false teachers to arrive at this, at this fulfillment, at maturity, by adding to Christ. We could add to Christ, say, a mixture of rules and some rituals, and let's go for some supernatural experiences. Let's get to maturity in Christ by adding to Christ. We need to say no to ourselves and say yes to angelic visions and all, all kinds of stuff. But Paul wrote so that the Colossians would understand the greatness of Jesus. This book is about the greatness of Jesus, that Jesus is sufficient to save us, but then also that Jesus is sufficient to change us. Jesus Christ, the point of Colossians, is more than enough. You don't need to go outside of Christ to become what Christ has called you to become. We don't need to fill up our salvation. We don't need to find a full maturity with rules and, 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 and traditions. The fullness is in Christ. He is the path to maturity. Jesus is how we become mature. So that's a little bit of what this book about is about how people become mature, what, what, what Christ intends. But Jesus is not only the path to maturity, he's also the definition of what maturity is. And I don't mean in the sense of him, God become man and all those Amazing things it says about him in Colossians 1, 15 to, 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 to 19. See, the false teachers promoted a, a kind of, of, of maturity or an appearance of it that was 
it was self-denial. It was religious experiences. It was looking mature by saying no to yourself. By, 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 by avoiding pleasure. It was, it, was, it was looking mature by adding on some Jewish holidays. It was looking mature by religious experience. See, for the false teachers, the path to maturity was also the goal. The path to maturity was the goal. And it was ultimately very selfish. It, it, was, it was just about, about being better. It was about attainment. It was about fullness, but it was fullness outside of Christ. But for Paul, and what he's writing to the Colossians, becoming like Christ in our relationships is maturity. Becoming like Christ in our relationships is maturity. That is the goal. Becoming like Jesus in our relationships within the church. Being a gracious church wasn't kind of the part of the letter that you scroll past. It, 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 it wasn't the part that you just flip to when you are having conflict. Yeah, okay, well, I got to bear and, 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 and forgive. No, really, the, the letter's push has been driving us toward this point of what it looks like to be a new creature in Christ. Being a gracious church, a church that operates by grace, a church that's fueled by grace, a church that dispenses grace is what maturity is. And being that kind of church is why Christ saved us. Now, I'm going to try to show from verses 1 through 11 why we have to be a gracious church. Like why that's the point of why Christ saved us. So I'm going to use this phrase, union with Christ, or being united with Christ. Scripture speaks about us being in Christ. It's what happens when we respond to the gospel and we're connected by God's Spirit to the work of Jesus Christ, to the person of Jesus Christ, so that when he died on the cross, he took the punishment of our sins, union with Christ, and when he resurrected, we got new life too. So it's our union with Christ, our, our being identified with him, him being our representative, connected to him through his spirit, through faith. Mm -hmm. Union with Christ, and here's the first reason why, uh, what, what, why this being gracious church is necessary. It demands a new way of doing life now. Union with Christ, being united to Christ, demands a new way of doing life now. In chapter 3, Paul begins to flesh out what we should do now we are united with Christ, that we are in Christ. In, in chapter 2, he tells them what they didn't have to do because they, because they had died with Christ. They were like, all that false teaching, you don't need all, any of that. Chapter 3, though, is what they are to do. In Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, and Brother Hyun read it earlier. If then you've been raised with Christ, if you are united with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The... The, the, the Colossians might have wondered, okay, so I'm supposed to set my mind on things above. Well, what are the things that are above? And, and these things that are on earth, well, what are these things that I'm supposed to be avoiding? I mean, is this, I'm supposed to be avoiding food? Is that a, a earth thing I should be avoiding? And, and, and am I just supposed to be thinking and trying to imagine what it looks like now for Jesus to be in, in heaven? Is that what it means to set my minds on things above? Okay, I'm imagining God, he doesn't have a body, but the son does, and he's there at the right hand of the father. I'm gonna set my mind on things above. Is that what he's talking about? Well, in the Greek, this phrase, the things that are on earth, is repeated in verse five. And, and it's described as, as, as what is earthly in you. And it is the identical phrase in Greek. The things that are on earth are listed in verses 5 through, 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 through 9. They can be summarized as selfishly pleasing yourself in, in sexual sin. Or, or lashing out when someone gets in your way. Or lying for your benefit. That lying, angry, selfish, covetous life. That is what the things on earth are. So when he says, don't, uh, don't set your mind on things on earth, it's all of that kind of living. Selfish, me-centered living. 
In contrast, the things that are above where Christ is, see at the right hand of God, it's what is appropriate in Christ's presence. And one commentator writes this, Believers seek the things above by deliberately and daily committing ourselves to the values of the heavenly kingdom and living out of those values. So committing ourselves to the values of the heavenly kingdom and living out those values. So in contrast, the things on the earth are selfish, sinful living, Living ourselves, uh, setting our mind on things above, is becoming like Jesus. Becoming like Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. It is verses 12 through 14. If you want to know what it means to set our minds on things above, it is verses 12 through 14. It is being a gracious church. We should seek these things. Oh, well, why should we seek the things above and not the things on earth. He explains it in Colossians 3.3. 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When we believe in Jesus, Jesus' life is the only life that a Christian has. Our old life is over. Our first life is over. It is done. We died with Jesus. Because Jesus is our life, because his resurrected life is our life, we seek to live in the above way and not on the earth way. And what is that above way? It's not just singing songs all the time around God's throne. Although we look forward to that, right? But it is in relationship with one another. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. He is our life and we want to live according to how, how he calls us to live. So to seek the things above and not the things on the earth is to put off the practices of the old self in verses 5 through 9, and we've talked about some of those. Verses 9 through 10, it talks about this union with Christ again. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. That's what you've already done. If you believe in Jesus, you've put off that old self. That old self is done. And have put on the new self. See, when... When we believe in Jesus, we've already taken off, and you can think of it as taken off Adam. We've we took off our Adamic sin-cursed life, our, our Adam life. That, that, that Adam life, everything that we were before Christ is done. And we've put on Christ. We've died, and we've been risen with Christ. So our Adam life is over, and our life in Christ is who we are now. We are new. We are we are in Christ. We have put on Christ. So we're to live like Christ. And verse 10 says, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. At creation, before sin, we were made in God's image. Now that image retained, but it was shattered by the fall. Now we are being remade in God's image, in the image of Jesus Christ, the eternally perfect, God-pleasing man. The new has been put on, and now we are being renewed in knowledge. And that's really what we're doing here this morning. It's part of our being renewed in knowledge. We are learning what God has called us to be, to be a gracious church. We're learning the new way of doing life. And so that's the, the logic of this passage. This is why we have to be a gracious church. Because you have been united with Christ, and that demands a new way of living. Not the old way, not the things of the earth way. The new way, the Colossians 3, 12-14 way. So if we want to set our minds on things above, we know what that is. It's, it's not to be selfish. It's to be gracious. It really does bring out a new wonder of what it means... Uh, to, to share the gospel with someone. The gospel is content. It is truth. But that gospel is going to be bringing that person into something. So when we invite someone to church, we want them to hear the gospel. The gospel is what's going to save. But what we really want them to participate in is, yes, relationship with God. But it's also relationship with one another. That's thrilling. And that brings glory to Christ. So we know that the necessity of being a gracious church is that the union with Christ demands a new way of doing life. We can skip back to verse 4. Union with Christ will end in our being like Christ eternally. Okay, Union with Christ will end with being like Christ eternally. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Jesus Christ returns, we're going to become like him. We're going to be transformed. 
The destructive influence that still remains of this old self of those practices is going to be gone forever. It already has lost its power, but it still influences. The effect of being an Adam will forever fade away, and the reality of being in Christ will be our only experience. The only way when Christ returns we'll be able to relate to one another, the only way will be in that verses 12 through 14 kind of way, that, that gracious way. It'll also be far easier because none of us will have any sin. That, that's why this is the opportunity now to bring glory to Christ. When Christ returns, sin is no longer going to fill our eyes with smoke, clouding our vision of what is true and of what is good. No one will have any reason to hide from one another. You'll never see someone coming and turn around. You never have to be afraid of being hurt by one another. You'll only have favor for one another for eternity. Our appearing with Jesus in glory is guaranteed for any who have been united with Christ through faith in his death and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 49 says, a brother shared this with me this week, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We are going to be like Christ. If you are in Jesus Christ this morning, if you have been saved by him, you will be transformed to be as perfect as he is, to be as loving as he is. Our transformation is going to be complete when we see Christ. But now we seek to see one another with Jesus' eyes. So that's part of the reason why we need to be this gracious church. It's because our union with Christ demands this new way of doing life now. It's because we're going to become like Christ eternally. But it also demands a new way of seeing people now. If you've been united with Christ, there's a new way you have to see people. The old way has to be gone. There's a new way of seeing people. And we see that in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, it says, Here, there is not Greek and Jew. There is not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. See, in Christ, distinctions, how we're different from one another, is not what is important. Distinctions are not the basis of how we treat one another. We must no longer be interested in, in sorting people out, in summing people up, in organizing people based on externals. We are not really white collar or blue collar. We aren't really Asian or other. We aren't really old CBC or new CBC. We aren't really homeschooled or public schooled. We aren't Santa Ana or Yorba Linda. We aren't north of the tracks or south of the tracks. All those things are insignificant here. I won't say that they're, that, that they're insignificant. They're not the basis of how we treat one another. They are who you are, right? They brought you to this point, right? It's part of your story of who God saves. We love to hear that story, right? It's why you do what you do at times. But it's not our distinctions, right? It's not how we treat one another. We don't see each other anymore that way. He's saying, here there is not Greek and Jew, we're not white and Asian and brown. We're not, we don't do that here. See, when we, think, when we think of things above, distinctions is not how we see people because Christ is everything to us. He is what matters. He is everything. And his glory is at stake. So, in as much as all of us were in Adam without distinction, every single human was in Adam. The curse affected every one of us. He represented every one of us. Now Jesus is in all of us without distinction if we are in Jesus Christ. So this is that new way of seeing people. It's Christ's way of seeing people. So he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Together we are those who have been chosen by God for salvation. That's incredible. We are those that God has called out of the world to be saved. We are those who have been, all of us in Christ have been cleansed by God. We are those who have been loved by God. We are in Christ. We are the recipients of un, unimaginable grace. And there is no, there's, there's no hierarchy here. Some of us are not more chosen than others. Some of us in Christ's presence are not more holy than others. Some of us are not more beloved than others, right? We are completely unified in that being beloved, in that being chosen, in that being holy. 
There's no one here more deserving of salvation than another. There's no distinction among us regarding God's favor. And if there's not, why would we show distinction of favor toward one another? If there's no distinction of us in God's favor, why would we have distinctions in our favor of one another? As God's grace extends to all he's chosen, all his chosen must extend grace to all. And that's, that's what we have to do. We have to see one another as God sees us. Not, not, not based on distinctions. Not based on our sorting. Not based on, on our experience, whether they're faithful or not faithful, or, or lots of sins or little sins, or whatever we're going to, whatever we could do. They are in Christ. They are chosen. They are holy. They are beloved. And we are deeply committed to one another in Christ. So then how do we become this gracious church? How do we cultivate being a gracious church? Well, first of all, we need to meditate on verses 1 through 11, right? Because we're supposed to set our minds on things above. We're crisis. This whole idea of we've taken off the old self, we put on the anew. Like those are rich verses there. We have to be committed to our union with Christ. We have to be convinced by our union with Christ. But if we're going to be a gracious church, we need to serve Christ's reign of peace. And we're going to see this in verse 15. So that was verses 1 through 11. It's kind of like, like, like the necessity of why verses 12 through 14 are so important. Because you're in Christ. Right? It is a totally different way of, of living. This is not the way the world does life. Okay? Verses 12 through 14, we're to be gracious to one another. And then we read verses 15 to 17. And you might wonder, well, why does he go there? And you're going to see as we go through this that I think what's going on here is, is, is how do we cultivate together being that kind of church? Those kinds of relationships of verses 12 and 14. He's not just kind of going to take a break and say, and now here's how you do worship service. And, 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 and you'll see this. So if we're going to be a gracious church, we need to serve Christ's reign of peace. And I know that that might be a little, a little awkwardly worded. We need to serve Christ's reign of peace. We need to submit ourselves to a bigger purpose. We need to serve Christ's reign of peace. Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now we can see here that Paul's still talking about relationships. Because he says, to which indeed you were called in one body. He just talked about all those relationships in verses 12 to 14. Now he says, this is what you're called to. You're called to one body. So this verse is not really a, about a feeling of personal peace. This is not about that the peace of Christ will be in your hearts. Ah, oh, calm, peace of Christ in my heart. He's talking about our corporate relationships. This is about Christ's reign of peace among us in our hearts, plural. It's about Christ's peace reigning among us. Colossians 1.20 talked about how, uh, how Christ reconciled all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And what, it's, what it's describing there is how Christ, his how Christ guaranteed universal peace by extinguishing God's wrath against our sin. That he guaranteed universal peace, su 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 submitted body of Christ, the people of God, to him for eternity. Reconciliation has been won, and Christ reigns. Now, we don't enjoy yet all, that, all the evidence of universal peace. But inside his church, Christ's peace must rule. We have to serve that peace. We have a purpose, and that purpose is, this is where Jesus' peace reigns. And peace is not only the idea of the absence of conflict, because sometimes we have conflict. This idea of peace is, is, is the flourishing that happens when war is over. That we are committed to seeing, yes, we want to solve conflict. That, that we are where God's people flourish. The church is God's garden. The church is God's field. The church is his kingdom. The church is where his people flourish. And his peace ought to reign among us. It must be the controlling, the controlling force. It has to be the deciding factor in our church, among our hearts. Now, it's not a facade of peace. It's not just kind of having pleasant tones and saying, oh, it's nice to see you. It's not just being polite to one another, kind of that wrong idea of graciousness. This peace 
rules through our hard work because we serve a bigger purpose, right? We want this, this body here to be where Christ's reign of peace is, where Christ's kingdom extends. And so we're going to work hard in one another's lives to see that we all flourish. We are committed to this. So our personal evaluation of one another is not really what matters. It's not about what, whether someone's rising or falling in our favor, whether they offended us or whether we can get over what they said to us. Christ's peace has to rule. This is his kingdom. How dare we cancel someone in our affections because they disappointed us, because they let us down. It's fascinating that verse 15, Paul adds, and be thankful. Be thankful that you're in Christ's reign of peace. Be thankful that you're part of this one body. We have to wonder this miracle that we were chosen out of the world to be incorporated into something so much bigger than ourselves. That we are part of this, this new humanity, that we are part of being in Christ. We're part of his kingdom where we are part of where peace flourishes. So be thankful. Now, I, I love how he says this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Relish the thought of that. Wonder at that. You're going to see in each of the next two verses he talks about being thankful too. So if we're going to be a gracious church, we need to serve Christ's reign of peace. We, we, we need to say this is where his, his peace kingdom is, and, and, and we're submitted to that. We're going to honor that. If we're going to be a gracious church, we also need to be inhabited by the gospel. It's Paul's word picture. We need to be indwelt with the gospel. His word, the word of Christ, needs to be in us. Now, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, I understand that might be tempted just to make this about... Sunday morning worship rather than about relationships. But the context of these verses, before and after, is relationships, right? The things of the earth were all those sinful relationships. The things above are these, the new relationship in Christ. And he's going to go afterwards in the sections to talk about our relationship with one another. So this is not just like, and I just need to teach you about Sunday mornings for a second. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It parallels the previous command, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ is the message of Christ. The word of Christ is the gospel. The word of Christ is to dwell in us, to have its home in us. Not just in our private meditations, like, oh, I'm going to go think about the gospel, but in us with one another. We are to be occupied by the gospel. We're, the gospel is to live among us as a body. We're to be saturated by it. We're to be inhabited by the gospel. So, so and I don't know if you've ever heard that, a phrase, if you cut someone, they, 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 they a bleed Bible. Well, that should be true of us as the body of Christ, right? That, that we ooze out the word of Christ. Now, you can see how doing that would make us a gracious people. We're always aware that we deserve judgment. We're always reminding one another of that. We're all, and I don't mean like, you deserve judgment. I mean, we, that's, that is what we, we breathe. We always marvel at Christ's willingness to take our punishment. We're always humbled by God's favor toward his enemies. We're people who realize life isn't really about us. It's about him. Right? When we... When the word of Christ dwells in us, really our relationships with one another are going to be sweet. So how do we become this? How do we become people inhabited by the message of Christ? It's through our ministry to one another. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, a good case is, is, is made that teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom is done through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
right? So we, in our ministry to one another, as we are teaching one another, it is we teach one another the gospel, and we admonish one another with the gospel, and then we sing to one another the gospel, and we sing hymns about Christ like Colossians 1, 15 to 19, and we sing psalms to one another, and we sing spiritual songs like we sing here on Sunday morning. I love singing this morning. We can think about that when we sing together. That is us letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we can teach and admonish one another. Yes, God enjoys our singing to him, but we're also saying, remember the blood of Christ. Remember the blood of Christ. I need the blood of Christ. You need the blood of Christ. Remember God's grace to us. And that's what we do when we sing. We, we encourage one another with God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. As the gospel dwells in our hearts, as we teach and admonish one another, as we sing to one another these songs with thankfulness, and I love that, it's thankfulness again. Remember what you've got. Then the disposition of our body will be grace. Right? If the content of our conversation is grace, if the content of our teaching is the gospel, if the content of our songs is the gospel, how are we going to relate to one another but in the gospel? Right? With grace. We're going to be gracious. How can hearts be full of thankfulness to God for his grace to us and we not have grace for one another? We must not be like the Pharisee that says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Right? That is an attitude that is not gracious. If we're inhabited by the word of Christ, if we're teaching each other the word of Christ, if we're admonishing one another with the word of Christ, if we're singing with one another the word of Christ, if we're giving thanks for the work of Christ, we will be gracious to one another. Remember, this is, these relationships are us putting on Christ. I mean, you know God could have all of us automatically like Christ, right? Just one bomb dropped on this building and we're all like Christ. Perfectly. No, he wants us to put on Christ. He wants us to be used in one another's lives to put on Christ. Right? That's what this life is about. It's about becoming more transformed, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That putting on Christ is being gracious with one another. And last, if we're going to be a gracious church, we must represent Christ. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word or deed, that's every conceivable activity, but it would often be used in, in a relationship. It's a summary of someone. Everything that you are to me in word or deed, all of this relationship, Everything that happens at Life Group, everything that happens when we meet together over coffee, everything that happens, Lord willing, in our homes by those who know him, everything in word or deed, everything that we do at work is done in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's appropriate to him. It's matching his character. It's conformed to his nature. It's as his representative. So as Jesus' representative, do you have Jesus' heart for one another? Let me ask you, how long is it going to take for your brother or sister in Christ to fall out of favor with Jesus? How long is it going to take for your brother or sister in Christ to fall out of favor with Jesus? A couple hard things said to them? Some, some disappointment not showing up for a ministry? Never, right? Jesus is eternally devoted to us. Are we more discerning than our master? Like, oh, I'm going to give them thumbs down because it's getting a little hard here. It's pride to make distinctions that Jesus wouldn't. And Paul's even more, more specific here. As we represent Christ, giving thanks Giving thanks. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Giving thanks while doing in Jesus' name. Giving thanks while speaking in Jesus' name for the privilege of representing Christ. For the honor of being in Christ. For the grace of loving others through him. Of acting and speaking for him. We need to be so much more mindful of this miracle. 
that we were incorporated into Christ, that we're no longer in Adam, that his life is our life, that we get to be like him. We get to put him on. We need to give thanks for that, that we can do that with one another. So every day he tarries, right? Every day before he comes back is another day that we get to, we get to glorify him by being like him with one another. This is the age in which we get to show his power to do miracles, making us like him, making us supernatural. So let me just ask you a couple questions as we close. Is there anyone who's fallen out of your favor? Is there someone who used to, you know, you'd be excited to see and now gets a thumb down in your heart? Is there anyone that you've judged and found lacking and have tired of? Is there someone you've stopped giving thanks for? Is there someone you've given up on? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for really showing us, really you opened up heaven a little bit to show us what your son is like. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to be like him. I pray, Father, that you would help us um, to have your word saturating our hearts so that we'd be used in one another's lives. I pray, Father, that we would uh, even now be encouraged by this word as we sing about your love. Pray, Father, you would help us to be good representatives of Christ in our relationships with one another. We pray, Father, that this would be a place where your peace reigns. Teach us uh, to be a gracious church as you've shown so much grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.